3: To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.
0: Thank you very much for coming. Um, This is is the quasi launch for my book, but it's also a chance for me to talk to Marina and Carl, who've inspired me in massive ways uh, and and keep on doing all the time. And it's it's wonderful doing it here. Uh, My sort of very minor subliterary career is largely down to the LRB. So it always feels like coming home with all the kind of like vague hatred that comes with that as well. But a lot of love. <laughs> a lot of love, too. Um, parents. Um, anyway, um, so we're going to talk about the, raw, kind of the roots of our current, I'll call it propaganda crisis, but the kind of like, I don't know, the cult of bullshittery, whatever's going on right now at Westminster as we speak. Um, this kind of crisis that everyone's now aware of, but we all maybe struggle to name post-truth. I don't, I don't know. The roots of it what we most hate about it or maybe like about it, and obviously really clear step-by-step guide of how we emerge from it and return to, you know, an enlightenment democracy, I think, I think with clear 10-point guides from all of us to be able to enact it, <laughs> enact it, I think, like, you know, def, definitely within kind of Boris Johnson's term as prime minister. So, like, <laughs> what, one more day before that that, that blows up? Um, we're looking for, we'll start off with the roots of... of the thing that we can't quite put our finger on. And we were talking downstairs, and and there's technological roots, but there's also cultural roots. I mean, my first book was about Russia, where I saw kind of the end of an ideology, a politics of ideology where, you know, communism's for all its evils was still trying to prove some sort of future uh, of the world. It was all meant to be rational, even if it was kind of weird. And then in the 90s and 2000s, ideology gets thrown out the window in Russia, Democratic capitalism is also seen as a bit of a disappointment. And instead, basically, politics becomes pure performance. Yeah, And Putin and his spin doctors tap into this very, very early. They realize, hold on, why don't we just blend politics and the reality show? And that would happen literally in Russia. Uh, you'd have, you know, you'd switch on the TV and there'd be like, two sides debating, like, mad right-wing people and mad left-wing people. And after a while, you realize they'd all been, you know, they're all kind of actually controlled by the Kremlin, and they'd been kind of cast as particularly ridiculous versions of their various ideologies, all to make Putin look good. By contrast, I'm simplifying massively, but that's kind of the essence of the thing. But Marina, at the same time you were kind of, you know, in the two, early 2000s, you were already observing um, a kind of a shift towards the blending of reality show and politics here as well. and. We're just talking downstairs, and there's a couple of moments you you picked out, which which I think are critical to to understanding where we are now.
4: I'm not sure about that. I I didn't actually predict that the biggest reality star of that era on both sides of the Atlantic would become the president, but I did think it was getting quite bad. I remember thinking Simon Cowell was a really bad thing. And although when I was writing about it in my showbiz column, I was trying to sort of tell jokes, I do remember thinking, yeah, this is quite fucked up, and all the things he's into are quite wrong. But... People loved it. His views on the elections were sought. Right, who would who would cowl back for whatever election it was? And I remember Gordon Brown saying, I would like an X factor politics. Do you still want one, Gordon? <laughs> <laughs> I think he probably regrets thinking that all these emotional stories and journeys and whatever were, you know, the future of politics. But Carl got himself got really into the idea. He was so drunk on his power at that point because he had the two top rating shows on both sides of the Atlantic. And he was saying things like, yeah, but they're doing it in China, Afghanistan, with X Factor Idol. We've given democracy to these countries. And again, I don't think that quite worked out. But he, I remember one time when he was sort of saying, I think that we should have a new show and it should be every Sunday evening. And you know what? People can ring it and people can keep voting. We should have a referendum every Sunday evening. <laughs> What do you think, guys? <laughs> who wants one of those? I they wanted to have a red phone in the middle of the thing and they could ring Downing Street at the end of the program.
0: Now, I remember talking to sort of people who exported uh, TV formats to China and other places saying, if we can get the Chinese to vote during yeah. like, X Factor, that'll teach them the values yeah. of democracy and that'll sort of inspire them to sort of democratic change.
4: It's going amazingly. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Vote. Yeah. Um, Carl, so that's
0: the kind of... That's part of sort of the cultural kind of like flow down which we've traveled much further now. But you approach the same kind of like clusterfuck through, through the logic of technology and how technology took us there. And, and there's a weird relationship. A reality show, and TV is my own background, um, was kind of like the final stage of TV where everybody was gagging to sort of get into the screen and anybody could be a star. And then suddenly social media delivered that. It was like social media was a sort of the, the hidden latent promise of reality show tv and um and, and how has the technology taken us further and further uh, away from democracy as we knew pr- previously
3: yeah well kind of the moment i was kind of brought fa- kind of face to face with the clusterfuck, as you call it was probably a couple of years ago when um i was kind of invited i was on a uh, british army base You know, it was around the rolling green hills of Berkshire and you kind of, you know, it's this kind of, it looks like your old school. It's kind of these kind of decrepit brick buildings and kind of outhouses and stuff like that. But in the the kind of offices, there were people that were doing graphic design and there was kind of posters on the wall saying things like behavioural changes are USB. If everyone is thinking the same, then nobody's thinking. I mean, it's kind of a weird mix of your old school and a tech giant. You know, there's lots of people doing data science and analytics. I was kind of, what on earth is going on? And it kind, of, it, it kind of led me to kind of begin to follow this thread in how conflict and, in fact, war has completely changed. Totally, utterly changed over the last kind of five or six years. Um, it kind of began on 4chan with cats, weirdly enough. Um, as all these people had gone on to 4chan. So, Did do, do
0: you all know what 4chan is? 4chan is the dank corner of the internet where the neo Nazis. Oh, you all go there, right. Okay, fine, <laughs> fine.
4: These are 8chan people.
3: These are 8chan people, are... Oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, uh, far, far less notorious um, or, or even racist back in 2003, 2004. 4chan was kind of like, you know, a simmering home of online subcultures, quite lefty, really, quite anti-corporate. But they kind of noticed with horror as all the normies came onto the internet. And they, they decided, okay, if everyone's invading our internet, well, we're going to invade offline life with the internet, And they began to kind of develop all the techniques which have become all too familiar with us now. They began doing sock puppet accounts. They tried to send Justin Bieber to North Korea by hacking the online poll. Um, They they made Moot Time Person Magazine of the Year. Moot was their leader. Um, They started trolling Oprah Winfrey's blog to get her to warn that there were 9,000 paedophiles. There weren't 9,000 paedophiles. It was an in-joke from uh, Dragon Ball Z. You know, they started doing swarm attacks. They basically began to pour over all these different things and work out how the Internet could be used to influence people. And, and kind of, I th- they never would have called this information warfare or probably anything other than the lols or maybe attention hacking. But then that turned into something for profit. And I think around 2005, 2006, we had this whole kind of shady illicit economy open up to, to do illicit influence. Um, I met some of these people. Uh, I met them in Kosovo. Fake news merchants, clickbait merchants, people in their early to mid twenties um, who have no idea what they're sending. One of them runs the largest portal for um, Native American information in the world. He has literally no idea what any of it actually means. But they can command. I mean, one of them could command, for instance. Um, I think you could get his content into more eyeballs than than the Sunday Times. The audiences they can attract, absolutely massive. So, so next it was for the, for the profit. And the kind of like last part of, of, of this kind of long transition, I think. And if, and if you look at militaries and the, what they actually write about why they exist and what they do, they've all gone through this, I think, momentous uh, kind of moment over the last kind of five or six years where they've all basically gone through the same line of thinking. They've all said... We now live in the information age. Information is really central to society. How do we as militaries react to this? Well, information needs to become um, uh, central also to war. And so, like, information's always been used in war, right? It's always been a tool of war. It's always been uh, deception and lying has always been part of how war works. But somewhere along the line, this kind of conceptual gymnastic leap happened where information went from being a tool of war to being a theatre with which war is fought in. Like It became a domain of war. You fought in information, you manoeuvred in information, you had to dominate the, the, the terrain of information. And that's the, that's the pieces we're picking up now. Every military around the world, liberal, democratic, autocratic alike, have all pivoted to fighting this new, you know, air, sea, land, space, information. Uh, and then maybe cognitive, to find these new domains.
4: One of the things I found so interesting in your book is the idea of war itself almost being post-war. You're saying it's almost like a sort of front for the actual war, which is information. It's just, it, you know, it's, it's a, a way of the stories being allowed to compete, but so that there's some sort of scenario happening that they can compete over.
0: Yeah, because, I mean, like, what you've just talked about, sort of like, you know, attention, influence, and sort of a philosophy of conflict is exactly what I would push onto my poor... Unwitting. Okay, no, cynical, attention-hungry reality show candidates. When I when I made reality shows, that's exactly what I was getting them to do, uh, and that's what we were told to do. We, yeah. we, we all read Aristotle very very deeply when we made reality shows, and we knew that conflict was the essence yeah. of drama. But that's every that's everything we do. And I remember when reality shows first started. Just to pivot back to reality shows, I'll I'll, I'll square the circle soon. Remember the first series of The Apprentice it was actually very, very nice. And it was like people being quite nice to each other, the British apprentices, and sort of genuinely competing with their different business ideas. Yeah, they were, they were taking it quite literally. And, and at one point, and Big Brother as well, they were quite like, they were quite like, they got on with each other at first and tried to sort of like, like help each other in the Big Brother yeah. house. And then kind of the producers, like, it must have been the producers, they made the decision to like,
4: okay, Just get them very drunk, yeah. make them fight the whole time. And one of the things I always was quite interested in actually that in those conflicts, the particular nature of reality television conflict was always, it was never really resolved, but someone would come in and say, well, you've got yours, you say that, and you say that. And I would always be like, no, but that person is actually wrong. That is the wrong thing to have done, like stealing those beans in the Big Brother kitchen or whatever it was. But it would always just be sort of... Stealing Crimea from Ukraine, yeah, That was a wrong you know, thing just, to do. They're not relative things. It was you know, a wrong thing to do. Absolute trust. There's
0: no two but, sides but, here.
4: Yeah. Uh, and, and, uh, but then they would just be sort of like, no, well, that's your story, and that's your story. And it was all just essentially part of the drama.
0: That's very true. And we're talking, coming back to information war. So in Russia, information war isn't just a series of techniques. It's sort of grown to a whole quasi ideology. It started off with these kind of nutters, nutty academics who were also kind of former spies. And now it's adopted by the president, who's a former spy. And just generally the whole, the the whole kind of media elite sweat. It's actually, it's much more than technique. They're basically saying that the Soviet Union fell apart not because it had terrible ideas or terrible economics or bad political values, but because of information viruses like planted by the West. It's a whole worldview that explains everything that happens out there as forms of manipulation. There are no values in this world. There are no political arguments, no, no, no facts. They're irrelevant as well. There's only different types of manipulation, different types of performance. All that matters is information dominance. It sees information purely instrumentalized the way a reality show candidate does. It doesn't really matter what you say in a reality show. You've just got to get the attention or generate conflict. And same in information war. It really doesn't matter. The truth of your argument is absolutely irrelevant. Information is just instrumentalized for attention hacking effects. I mean, they're kind of like the reality show culture and information war are kind of like two the, 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 the entertainment and the military side of, of a very similar kind of like crisis where but facts don't matter anymore.
3: Well, it's, it's a kind of weird melding, isn't it? You've got the kind of like, you've, you've got the emotive kind of raw, very human kind of like things which reality TV shows expose. And, and outrage um, is for sure the, the largest, I think, the largest tool of the information warrior. I've spoken yeah. to people that have tried to do it. And like what, what they tell me is uh, we never actually try and change the mind of large groups of people. That's not what this is about. This is about making people angry about the things they already believe. Um, and, and outrage activation is just, sadly, the easiest thing you can do using the Internet. It's, it's much, much easier to get you angry about something than it is to cha- get you to change your mind. So you've got all of that. But then you've got this like, really clinical world where, where information is, like, is treated like a vector. You know, it's, it's almost like this is like Newtonian mathematics. People talk about like viral uplift. And they'll talk about, like, angles information can strike you. And they'll talk about change models and influence models. And these are things which more and more and more are being rendered actually into quantifications and measurements and A-B testing. But how can it? Because I spoke to a lot of these people and and I I currently work at the London School
0: of Economics where, like, if you don't have a methodology, you're not allowed to enter the conversation. It's like, what's your methodology for measuring this? Is it qual or quant? But, like, can you really measure information effects? I mean, it's bollocks, isn't it? Sorry, not, not everything at the LSE. Just just that little question. Yeah.
3: I think you can. And, and certainly, like, unlike us, Peter, if you're willing to resort to uh, more illicit techniques. So there's a whole kind of like, you know, there's like a circle here, right? So uh, if you're an information warrior, you kind of like, you know, you've got your public, you do research on them, you work out how they tick, you, you realise what they like and dislike, you get your change model, like why are they going to change, like how is their behaviour going to change. You then get your channels, how are we going to reach them. You then get your kind of like you, you then exploit those channels. So you've got campaign activation. You then got measurements where you try and see whether the behaviour is changing or not in the ways that you want. And then you kind of rinse and repeat. Now, like how do you actually do that? Well, as academics or as researchers or even as journalists, actually quite difficult. But if you're willing to reach into the darker areas as as information warriors are, well, I sit on your email. You know, I, I, go, I, I, I breach your computer. I breach your organisational systems as well. I bug your home. You know, and this is where the kind of like, you know, the covert world of intelligence and this, this, this world that we're used to inhabit, you know, of information and arguments and debate, they actually begin to weirdly meld, as so many things are in this world, into kind of like shadier, greyer versions of each other. So I think there is a lot you can do if you're, if you're willing to break the law and if you know more about computers than the people that you're seeking to target. Whether any of that actually really works is still an open question. And we, we don't know as researchers, we, we don't know what, what, what campaigns are more influential than others. I actually secretly believe that we often look at information warfare as a way of explaining things like the rise of national populism or Trump, actually that are due to a series of like profound social and political forces that have nothing to do with people being duped. So I think it's like a, we can sometimes use this actually a fig leaf for, for not understanding how society works and for kind of blaming Cambridge Analytica or blaming information yeah, warfare on things I which are... Too. Yeah, and I kind of worry about the liberal left actually over-focusing yeah. sometimes on this kind of thing.
4: Well, it's a form of conspiracism in itself, which is linked to the things it's supposed to be criticising.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, think, I, think, I think especially journalists like to write about information because we work in information and therefore it's like, you know, it's like you know we're writing about ourselves. Well, it and, feels personal, doesn't uh, yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, but even if we don't take it as a kind of like a cause and effect thing, there's an expression of much deeper thing. I mean, see, there seems to be sort of a common malaise between an entertainment culture where Information is just used for the sake of, you know, information dominance and attention grabbing and ratings, but not because of its substance and conflict for the sake of conflict. You obviously have a politics that's completely blended with that to the point where a reality show Muppet is president. And then you have in the world of war as well, moving away from kind of wars. We've thought about it before to essentially... A massive reality show. I was, I was in, I go to Ukraine in this book quite a lot, and I go to the front lines, and it's a very weird war in, in the Donbass in eastern Ukraine. Neither side want this territory. Again, I'm, I'm kind of like, I'm simplifying, but neither one wants it. Both need it only so far that they can tell a story to their own audience. So the Ukrainians need it to show that if you were going to be a separatist, things are going to be unpleasant, and they just need enough video material to tell that story. The Russians needed to tell the story. If you want democracy, you end up with war and bloodiness. You know, their big thing is breaking down the narrative of 1989. Like, pro-democracy protests equals bloodshed. That's what they've got to show. Um, and both sides are kind of like using the same material and then cutting it in different ways to their respective audiences. Uh, obviously, in my mind, being a, a, a Ukrainian um, who's lived in Russia... Uh, there's only one side to blame in this conflict, but still the, the mechanics of the information conflict are very, very interesting. But that's exactly what happens when, you know, you, you, you have like an interview between some sort of like Ben Shapiro, some alt-right guy, goes on TV, has some sort of experience, and then immediately each side is a, I, know, Yeah, know,
4: I saw this interview that Farage did on Andrew Marr about, um, I don't know, sort of a couple of months ago, maybe or three months ago. And almost within, he just did it. With everyone said of said, oh, Mar got the better of him. I mean, whatever that means. Because in 15 minutes, Farage's side had cut it totally so you don't even see Mar anymore on the clips. And all those clips go out. And there he is against the BBC background, just literally getting his talking points away. And it says Farage, you know, owns.
3: Owns. This owned genre drives me crazy. <laughs> I hate it. Yeah.
4: Yeah. That, it just says Farage owns Andrew Marr. Uh, you were talking about owns, and it made me laugh that it's just a whole. Uh, everybody is said to. I mean, even the interview that Ben Shapiro walked out admitting to Andrew Neil that he wasn't prepared. Um, <laughs> I, I've seen that described as actually he's owned it, and actually this is a win for Ben Shapiro. And I slightly wonder now whether we need to think this kind of. Supposedly gladiatorial thing where some real hotshot interview like methodically takes these people apart one by one because this is what happened with Steve Bannon sitting down at the border in some thing and I just thought this is he's been totally legitimised by getting onto the BBC why he's not even what's he why is he on he's just a grifter now he's not if he's in the White House fine I mean maybe you interview him but he's not and I just. The way he used that interview and that uh, to legit, legitimize himself, I think we have to be really... It's not the same as in the old days when people used to do this. And I do think, having been someone who was more of an absolutist on free speech, I do think actually some people, why are they on? They don't need to be on. and They certainly don't need to be on as much as they are. And. Um, so we, censorship? No. I'm not... But so I don't so think so you have to... You're, you're no, I think that, there are... I'm, I listen to young people more who are saying that, you know, why do we have to have these people here? There's a line in The Simpsons where Bart Simpson's doing something, and he's quite rude to this guy, and he goes, young man, in my day, we didn't talk to whatever. And this and Bart says, yeah, well, this is my day, and we do. And I quite think, that, you know, these young people who, many of whom have been chased down the street, being having racist things screamed at them, it's always some middle-aged white guy who's going, yeah, I just think we should have every view. And I think maybe listen to people who have been... I'm, no, I'm not totally sure that sunlight is the best disinfectant. Nick, Nick Griffin did brilliantly f- from the question time when he went on it. Everyone said, have him on, he'll be a moron, and he'll you know, make a fool of himself. And he did. But you know what? BNP recruitment went up. Now they've fallen away, but maybe they've been absorbed into other areas of our politics. So I think, I think we've kind of defined
0: the crisis and now we're moving towards what do we do about not, it. So no, no, quite. no. Kind of, no you, you want to there's, make it worse there's first. A, there's a missing
3: jigsaw piece. Oh, no. Everyone, it, it can you imagine? <laughs> we, we have spent 20 minutes talking about all of this and no one has blamed the tech giants for anything. What? I was yes. going to say, I had a whole line ready, but then you, 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 you were so good. No, go on. They like
4: what? the outrage.
3: Well, they're like, they're,
0: it's as if Simon Cowell took his braid and put yeah. it into Mark Zuckerberg's. Or maybe Mark Zuckerberg was actually, maybe this is what happened. Zuckerberg just grew up watching X Factor. I was like, okay, and at some yeah. subliminal level, you know, outrage, attention seeking good, because it's as if the social media giants have programmed their algorithms with Simon Cowell logic or with Gordon Brown logic. I don't know. But sort of Gordon Brown and Simon Cowell, because they're both political and entertainment. It's bizarre. The whole thing. I mean, the whole thing just basically provokes a behaviour which is not about truth or debate or reasonableness, but which is about attention-seeking, outrage and polarisation. And it's almost as if the technology is now summoning up these politicians. You know? The politicians are like, oh, that's what I've got to do. OK, I'll do that as well.
4: They're being yielded by Salvini the algorithm. Salvini may have been a
0: nice
3: guy, but then he just saw, well, I've got to do this, this is the game. And he's transformed into a monster. And all of that, I think, <laughs> implies why platform engineering... The actual underlying piping which runs these platforms is one of the most important battlegrounds which we have today. It changes everything and in it, it is essentially an expression of implicit philosophy about what people should see. There are values baked into all of those platforms and and human rights and goods and bads and, and, and values are fought and won and lost and die on that hill now. And yet we, we, that's, it's nowhere near politicized enough. It's nowhere near visible enough. Not enough people understand how they work. Politicians aren't asking the right questions about it. And I kind of, that really gets under my skin because, like, you know, there is no, nothing is enshrining your rights, maybe anywhere, but certainly online, more than a protocol which very few people have heard of called TCPIP. That protocol, what? TCPIP, <laughs> runs the internet. That is a basic protocol which runs the internet. And baked in there is a particular vision for how the internet should work. Right. And now that is one of many different parts of the Internet, which is now coming under attack by autocracies. And like these are these are now they are the enshriners of, of, of all the rights which we enjoy, actually, which are so ubiquitous and fundamental to all of us. that We don't even see them and know they're there. Like one other quick example, YouTube. Like we, we focus on Facebook so much. We all hate Facebook, Zuckerberg's so terrible. And Twitter, because like journalists are on Twitter a lot and so are politicians. YouTube is an absolute hornet's nest of conspiracy theorism and, and alt-right garbage. It is the home of the own genre. It is nowhere near as protected as the other platforms. And the reason for this is that in 2015, YouTube had something called the Gangnam Style Problem. So all of their algorithms basically recommended more popular content. So if you like this, well, more yeah. people like that. And basically, all the everyone eventually, if you clicked on these recommender um, links enough, ended up at Gangnam Style by style. <laughs> <laughs> Now we find who's really to blame. Right, so that was a a Gangnam-style problem. So they they made this momentous decision in 2015 that they were going to re-architect their algorithms. And instead, what they tried to do is they said, well, people are likely to be on our platform if we actually push them to more diverse content, which is similar to the content that they've already seen. And this just became a nightmare. So you would begin by looking at um, weight loss visit videos, and you'd end up with crazy pills, you know, or end up with like radical pro anna kind of weight loss stuff, um, or you begin by looking at some reasonably centrist alt-right politician, and end up with Shapiro, and then more, and then more, and then the alt-right, and the Nazis, and basically these algorithms like pushed um, so much attention away from mainstream centrist stuff and gave this. Just unbelievable, unprecedented amount of airtime to a series of fringe ideas, which were by definition, and the algorithms recognised them to be more fringe and more and kind of further away from the mainstream than the things that people were already seeing. So basically, and, exactly what I was doing when I was producing reality shows like, more extremes, guys, more yeah. extremes, we need more conflict. And this went, you know, and we, this went under the radar, right? Because like 2015, 2016, like, I guess like the main, we, we all knew about YouTube, but we hadn't quite realised that this was like television for everyone under the age of 30, yeah. right? Yeah. So like politicians weren't really looking at it, we weren't really kind of like, people in power weren't subjecting these things to the kind of scrutiny which already their kind of centrality in society demanded that it should have. And now we're just reaping the benefits, or rather the, the sorrows of this. This is one of, that's genuinely, I don't like to kind of over privilege technology, but that algorithmic shift is one of the reasons we've seen the far right rise around the world, genuinely. So we've got 10 minutes left to do solutions. Let's do small steps. The Russian, Russian dissidents, who I talk a lot about in my book
0: as well, I'm yep. trying to plug my book during this conversation. They talk something about the theory of the small steps. So like, what are the small steps we can take in order to start dealing with this? Actually, I want to start something very small. Marina, when you write about this world, this kind of like, and you write about it all the time and all of us read you, and, and it's kind of like, it's become a way for us to sort of like, you know, get through the day. But
4: (laughs) (laughs) But thank you for being so (laughs) kind.
0: No, that is that is well certainly true for me. Maybe a few other people. How do you square the circle? Because you're writing about these attention grabbing people who don't care about the truth. How do you write about them while not playing into their games? Because that's a a, you know that's a crisis all all journalists face all the time. And how do you satirise people who are you know self satirising? Sometimes
4: it's it's definitely harder for sort of um, long term satirical projects. I I mean, it's very hard, I think, to imagine sort of satirical dramas at the moment because it's so fast moving. That it really it takes a long time, obviously, as you know, to get a TV show into production and things like that. It takes a long time. Whereas someone like John Oliver, I think, does it very well in the United, you know, he does it once a week, and they've obviously got a lot of people working on that show. And he goes down into it's still very funny, but he goes down into one issue. I found it has been God. I mean, I don't really know what to say about my nonsense, but it's it, it helps if you're doing it sort of, you know, it's it's disposable. What I'm doing, it's not supposed to be hanging around for years or be it's, it's supposed to be it is changing so quickly I think it is good to try and write something at the time of it happening although I have to say for me that I ha, well, have been quite depressed by the turn of events over the last few years and it has been quite satisfying just put on a very personal level to try and think of some jokes about it it does slightly kind of exercise it for me it, I mean it's a form of therapy in some way I suppose um, but, but that's not really very helpful for anyone else
0: <laughs> but, but, but also but your work is actually full of like you know it's, it's actually quite morally serious there's, I mean the, there's this very powerful column oh, you did is the it? other day <laughs> it very, yes I think so uh, but so is John Oliver's and, and maybe satire always is but, but, but you had this very powerful column the other day about Prince Andrew and, and really with one of the most powerful kind of indictments of you know why sort of s- s- you know, 50-year-old men should not really, uh, you know, hang around with vulnerable young women. You know, he's got kids himself. I mean, does he understand that this is someone else's child?
4: Well, yes. um, Yes, I think that one... I do try and every... I do try to keep the anger out. I very rarely use an angry... There was an angry tone in that column, but I've... One of the things I've always thought in writing is that to, to really keep the angry tone out and to use it so sparingly, and then when you do use it, it has got more effect. And also, I think people just... There are some... Columnists, perhaps, who are more shouty, and but actually you do switch off because it's every, every time they're ever doing it, they're across all the time, and I actually think that. You kind of need to use it sparingly. I always thought that even when I was doing the diary column many, many years ago, I always thought that sort of fake sympathy was much more effective as when you're taking the piss out of politicians. Fake sympathy or sort of exaggerated politeness was much more effective and and, and much more cutting than sort of something more, I don't know, head on. Um, And I do try and think of, I do think jokes are quite effective ways of doing things. So I try to do it um, and I also just think we need jokes. Fucking, oh, it's so depressing. <laughs> so I try and tell jokes about a, quite a depressing time. Cool fact
2: a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Is that where,
0: is is if you're writing now, as opposed to sort of like the. 1990s or the 1800s or the 1700s I mean I, you've probably never done this thought exercise but is there something specific about doing sort of political and social satire now is there a difference by doing it now
4: I don't know I always try now I, I I wasn't really allowed to write about politics until I was about 40 in the Guardian oh is this being recorded um, <laughs> um, but, but, but anyway but but I definitely think that it I think that people like to talk about it I always do lots of analogies for things that people might actually like e.g. I don't know sport movies television just pop songs anything other than just discussing Westminster in terms of itself which I find very I don't think anybody normal just thinks of things like that or anyway they'd much rather think about it surely through term, in terms of a film they like or f- football or something other than this kind of relentless it seems ever tighter focusing on these in this tiny way of talking about things. So I've, I've tried to do it like that. So I have, I don't know whether people did that. Yes. I hope that, yes, I think people trying to sort of satirise in those looked out to, to find common ground with actually the experience of people's lives, because it's not, it's just not the experience of people's lives.
0: So so that's very interesting because in the interviews that I did for the book, didn't actually go into the book, but I talked a lot to sort of old Soviet dissidents and conceptual artists from that period. And they said their main task was because, I mean, their language and sort of social and political language had been eaten up so deeply by the Soviet, by the Soviet state. They were constantly looking for new ways to talk about reality and to talk about politics. So they used the language of ballet, the language of uh, of religion, anything. Not yeah, to I really use. get. I Lang- really get language that. Language has been consumed. Yeah,
4: anything other than talking about it in political terms. I always wanted to write about politics in the way I do now and talk about it in just in terms that in other in other ways, not in a conventional way of. discussing it because I just felt that it was a turn off and it just wasn't really relevant and also it was kind kind ridiculous
0: because they've made a nonsense out of
4: it yes and they have stripped word and actually even under Tony Blair there were so many words I mean the ideas of words like taking responsibility and all these kind of phrases that were completely denuded of meaning so I suppose you have to find other ways of doing it
0: Carl let's regulate (laughs) let's get regulatory. it's great I mean I'm I, like you have been pulled into sort of discussions in, in Whitehall about how to regulate, it's going to happen. But it strikes me there's a way to regulate this well, and there's a re- way to regulate this which will make it even worse. And we're obviously choosing the latter of that yeah. of that sort of decision
3: tree. Of course. <laughs>
0: when would we ever know? <laughs> uh, what I mean, what, what's um, okay? What, I mean, in Britain especially is going to take some regulatory steps around uh, the internet. Yeah. How how can it be done optimally, and how will it go wrong? A discussion around regulation. Yeah. We're going to make uh, this fun, though. Yeah. So, okay, uh, so we have, right. oh, we're about to go into questions for the
3: hall. Let's just tease something. All about right, let's, let, There let, 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 is a big
0: debate in Whitehall at the moment. I mean, outside, I know everything from Brexit. Actually, there's a very big discussion about
3: this. Yeah, yeah, there is. All right, here's my two cents um, the, the solutions you'll hear are digital literacy training I mean, and uh, And uh, that won't work. It all. will in the long term. Um, no, it, it won't even work in the long oh, term. Right. How, do you, how, how do you train people to find, to detect something which is constantly changing and deliberately hidden? I like, think
0: actually digital literacy makes things work it makes people super cynical about everything. And our problem is a lack of trust. It's just like, if you tell people, don't believe anything on the internet, then, you know, well, we have that with deep fakes already, don't we? Yeah. We have like, you know, uh, sort of like politicians saying, oh, don't
3: believe that stuff about me and the prostitutes. Just a deep fake. Yeah. Don't trust yeah. anything out there. Yeah. But it's but it's woolly and it's uncontroversial and it doesn't kind of like affect any of the basic balances that we've got. And everyone wants to empower, you know, empower young people, especially. So, you know, it's one that's always trotted out. And I'm sure the tech giants are going to kind of bang a couple of million into it um, uh, every couple of years. And it won't make the blindest bit of difference. So... Um, the first thing to do is just to get rid of the idea that like, digital literacy, generally, and other stuff, is great for information warfare. It just isn't. It, it, it's, it's unhelpful that we even think it's a solution. And in, a, in a nutshell, like what I would do, I would criminalise some bits of it. To be honest, I, I'm, gonna, I'm just. Gonna, I'm about to sound quite illiberal for a <laughs> for a, for a centre-left think tanker. All right, just sorry, but this is genuine. I believe I would criminalise some bits of it. I just don't think it's okay. Um, to like for instance share like voter suppression information targeting black communities Mm. in the states immediately before an election i just don't think you can do that i think that we have to refresh the espionage act like i think it actually just shouldn't be legal some of the stuff that's happening so i would criminalize it i would regulate but i wouldn't regulate content like, I just don't see how we can do this. Like, there's so many examples of, of parts of information warfare which have nothing to do with lying to people, as i already said. Mm-hmm. It's got to do with, like, making you angry by simply selecting some facts over other facts. You can build this grotesque view of the world simply by making some facts more visible than others. Um, and, and there's nothing we can do around the content, I think, to be able to legislate against that. So I would, I would make the platforms less frictionless. They've all been optimised to grow. That's what social media platforms want to do. And that's, that means joining them and doing stuff on them and following people on them is made as easy as possible. Great for the platforms, probably bad for societies that are now based on those platforms in many ways. So I would I would regulate into the engineering, those pipes I said, those invisible pipes that I've already whinged to all about are being so important. I, I would see what we can do in terms of like international treaties and all the deterrence architectures that we've got. Um, we have to make this stuff like more costly and riskier um, for the people that do it, I would, uh, for instance, like do no-fly lists. Like it's worked quite well actually for Chinese theft of inter- American international property. You put them, you you, uh, you name and shame them, like you sit on their servers, like and then you reveal who they are and you say you'll never come into the United States or Europe ever again. I hope you're going do your Christmas shopping in Russia, you know. And this, I, I think, this kind of stuff could we could do a lot more of all that kind of stuff. Sorry, that sounds really liberal. And in a sense, like I, I I'm actually uh, in this of many areas, I'm not. I don't think that the fact-checking and the civic society communities and in general, I don't think they're going to win by themselves. There has to be heavier intervention by liberal democratic governments. There has to be, to to change the calculus that autocracies make when when they think about whether to do this. That's hard power, I'm afraid, as well as soft power, and we're not using enough of... The hard power that we actually still um, have in order to try and protect but what ourselves. About, very quickly, but
0: what about domestically though? I mean, that's that's the, the that's the transnational stuff, but what about? So, Marina Warner, editor at the LIB, said that there's one thing that needs to be changed. It's the icono- iconography of Facebook. Get rid of likes and emoticons and all that stuff. That really pushes you towards an emotional logic that takes you away from reasoned debates and genuine interaction. I mean, is it the case she was being provocative, but is, is it like that as well? Do we need to actually have entry into the algorithm so
3: that? we have some sort of public oversight about the kind of behaviours they're provoking in society? I mean, look, if we want to reach down to the most profound solution of all, we have to make online life much less like a game. Like, what has basically happened is that these platforms have created games out of things uh, which answer our basic existential questions. You know, what What does it mean to be successful? How can, we, how can we be popular? You know, how can we mean something? How can we matter to other people? These are questions which we always, human beings, carry with us all the way through our lives. And now, like, in their different ways, um, the technology platforms have answered them for us by presenting games which we now just furiously try and win. Like, we, we don't ever ask ourselves what these games are or, or, or what they do to us or, or whether we want to play. We just furiously try and win. Um, in so many different areas of social life. So if we really want to get rid of this, I would get rid of all the metrics, get rid of all the follower counts, get rid of all the retweet counts, get rid of all the ways in which we can just scurry after the most number of kind of retweets or Instagram posts or, or Facebook likes, you know, to get rid of all of that. You know, there are ways of using the internet to connect us genuinely one another without making us these kind of frenzied, game-winning, game you know, people that changes all of us. And actually, by the way, t- t- changes our relationship to one another as well. Because suddenly we become players in the game rather than citizens with each other and, that, and, 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 and the game, of course, can itself be gamed and gamified and, and, and that's kind of what I think is happening. So if you really want it, like you can reach deep down and completely rewrite. I mean, the, the, I want to be optimistic in my kind of final word before questions, which is like the good news here, folks, really, is that the internet can be redesigned. Digital technologies were designed once and they can be redesigned now. Now like we have never had... The amount of capacity as we do right now to actually like like explicitly design the worlds in which we live in. So we can do it. We can actually define, design these worlds to be much more humane and much more resilient to things like information warfare. But there are a lot of these obsessive addictions, like playing these games, which we've got to wean ourselves off of um, first, culturally, if we have ever got hope of doing that.
0: I think I, I did promise that I would take us from a journey from reality shows and Simon Cowell through to solutions. I think that was a very very powerful speech. Yeah. We'll start Clapping a couple of times. That's as, as coherent, as coherent, uh, a kind of a solutions offer as, as I've ever heard. Uh, we have a, a few minutes for for questions because. Sorry, minutes. To... No, no, no. That's I think this was the original plan. You're just all stunned in admiration for that speech. was like, Oh my God! It can change. It can be different. There's a question over here.
5: Hi, hello. Thank you so much for such an amazing introduction and I'm sure everyone is so fascinated about your book and intrigued. My question to uh, Peter Pomerantsev about uh, your statement uh, that uh, there is a possibility or uh, you presume that neither Ukraine or Russia are interested in returning Donbass. Uh, did you make this conclusion based on the analyzing information uh, online or any other and also uh, when you said returning the territory, the territory doesn't need to be returned because it is Ukrainian under the international law. What did you mean by that, returning the mind of the people who left there, who are under the uh, Russian occupation, or returning the mind of the perhaps uh, Russian people who are in Russia and supporting uh, Crimean annexation and uh, military intervention in Donbas?
0: We'll take a few because that's a. I'll, I'll definitely get. I'll definitely answer that. First, thanks very much for the, the brilliant presentations. Two forward questions, which might be the same question. Is there any hope, and where will this end? Okay, hope. And
5: <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, I was just wondering. Uh, so, a question for all of you. So, Marina mentioned um, this issue about things that are objectively wrong and objectively right, I think, in the context of stealing chickpeas.
4: and <laughs> Baked beans.
1: Baked beans. Sorry. sorry. You always I get a highbrow argument on yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Always. And, um, yeah, so this is something that's been, I find, really difficult. Sorry to bring up the Brexit word, which I know you haven't really talked about, but that's something that seems to me to be objectively wrong, but I see very intelligent people who I admire saying that it's a good thing, and I see that with so many other things at the moment as well, just in small scales, like in my employment and things like that where things that seem objectively bad are sort of presented as something good. And I just struggle to see where where you find now the objective truth, you know, everything is biased, the Guardian is biased, the Telegraph is biased, everyone is giving their own views. So I'd be really interested to hear your views on that. Thank you.
5: How has your social media use changed from what you've learned?
0: Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> it's a problem. It's like smoking. Oh, it's killing me. Stretchable. It's, <laughs> it's true. Yeah. <laughs> Marine, do you want to tackle the simple question of bias?
4: Ah oh, well, <laughs> yes. Uh, well, I mean, I think. I mean, everything. There's always stories have always competed, and that I think that you know that's something. We, uh, that has always been the case. And actually, even with the Brexit um, vote, which obviously some people feel one thing and some people feel another thing, you know, and you can say, which you're voting against your economic interest. Lots of people vote against their economic interest for lots of different reasons. You might actually vote, because you believe in better redistribution of wealth and you might vote for a left-wing pub party that promises to do that. That is essentially against your own economic interest, but you'll still do it. There are various competing is I worry more when things... Uh, as I say, things have been sort of I don't know, I saw this deepfake thing that I was talking about earlier when it was such an amazing (laughs) deepfake thing that they can do within eight seconds. They can change something so it looks like it's completely, basically completely realistic. And I thought, how long before someone like Trump just starts saying, no, I never said that, that didn't happen, even though it actually, I I, I would have classed that as a a completely objective piece of truth. I think that's coming really soon. So I think that side of things is getting worse. And I think people will literally just say, people will say, Black is white and up. I mean, and but to some extent, they've always done that. They've always been competing narratives about all sorts of things. And that I don't think is new. Um, I think the way in which it can happen now with technology is obviously something that we can't understand. And, and the way that that can just be disseminated so quickly is a, is a problem. I, I, again, you understand more about how to regulate this stuff than me, but I think that that, that is something that needs to happen. I'm not sure fact-checking, though. is It's, it's a very low-level solution to the problem.
0: So, so what's happened with bias? There was always, so in the book, uh, still plugging away, um, I talked to some BBC executives. And I contrast the BBC of the late 20th century and now. There was always accusations of bias at the BBC. <coughs> in the 1980s, go back and look at the scandals, of how yeah. Seamus Milne's dad was sacked, maybe unfairly, yeah. by, by Margaret Thatcher's uh, proxies, and where we now have to suffer for that today. Um, but um, uh, parents. Uh, but. Um, <laughs> Uh, What's changed now is back then there was still an idea that objectivity was possible. You're being biased, but there is an objectivity out there. What's different now is that there's an assault on the very kind of ideals of public service broadcasting on impartiality, balance, objectivity, fairness. One of the heads of the Russian uh, propaganda industry, Dmitry Kisilov, is out there saying objectivity is a myth imposed upon us, which is exactly the sort of argument that Newt Gringrich gives, that Sean Hannity, the, the main attack dog on Fox, that's a different kind of argument. They're saying, not just your bias, fair enough, that we can get to objectivity together, we can enter into a discussion. They're saying, no, it doesn't exist at all. And that is a much, much more dangerous place to be in. Um,
4: Alternative facts.
0: Just Yeah, but just that the, the yeah. agreement is a priori impossible. Uh, and th- that's very, very hard to work with. Uh, There's a question about hopes and ends and what okay. does this end is there hope?
3: All right, thanks. That's the easy ones to to deal with. Um, all right, I'm going to be really optimistic. So I, I just come back from Tai. Uh, can we like? I, I can't like. I, I forgot this is being recorded. All right, I can't. Re- I came back from Taiwan and we're doing a BBC program on the digital democrats there. Um, I will try and be as unspecific as possible to try and not get myself in trouble. But but. <laughs> Is this about V Taiwan? Yeah. Oh yeah. I've read right. about that. So yeah. if I know about it, like, it's out there. No, no. V, v Taiwan's not <laughs> a secret. Yeah. Like, all right. So, so, so they they, they, they too realised that their society was being polarised and in fact ripped apart by technology, and then they did something about it. So they they got into power. These civic hackers. One civic hacker became the digital minister, and then she like designed with others this kind of whole new process for doing politics. Um, and at the heart of it is a platform where you have online debate where people from different viewpoints come together but it looks absolutely nothing in fact it's actually deliberately the opposite of Facebook or Twitter rather than you can't you can't reply you can't troll but probably the most important aspect of this is that rather than just showing you the people surround you it shows you the whole it shows you the whole debate shows you where you sit in this whole debate. And then the statements it surfaces are the ones which are most in common, most consensual across all the different parts of the debate. So it basically gamifies consensus finding. (laughs) And what it it finds is that when you re-engineer online debate to basically about finding consensus rather than about surfacing division, you actually find that on almost every issue, Um, there might be like four or five like points which like people are bitterly divided on and normally that's what actually the debate is about but really there are 20 or 30 which people actually hold in common with one another and they usually provide a solid enough ground for you to actually just move forwards so in a way they don't try and make you kind of like reconcile your your, your most profound beliefs with someone that has another series of different and opposite profound beliefs they kind of just like sidestep it and say, okay, well what do you hold in common with each other? And like then they actually turn that into law. They've turned around twenty or thirty pieces of regulation and law now through this process and, and they're going to now roll out so that I think all pieces of regulation and will go through a kind of VTAR one inspired process. So what does that tell us? I think that goes that it tells us that the nature of the places where we have these debates are as important as any of the debates that we actually have. And our future, really, I think, will depend on whether we kind of politicise now the right things. If we don't politicise things like the plumbing underneath these yeah. platforms, the kind of things that made visible or not, the ways in which we then are shown or not shown what other people think which may be similar or different to us, if we don't politicise these things, we don't turn them into active questions, and we don't kind of like say like okay well there's different ways in which we can do politics and we kind of force power to kind of interact with these and begin experiments around it then i think we're going to go down a pretty dark path because i don't think there are incentives for the tech giants to do this by themselves but if we can like if we if we do like kind of pivot as as taiwan has done and shown that it's possible then i think actually the internet can do the things that we always hoped it would do which is kind of actually bring people closer together and actually engage those more people who wouldn't be involved in politics in politics so so for me, like, it hope, yet, yes there's hope, and it ends with this question of, like, are we going to actually kind of politicise and think about and be activists around the right kinds of things? And the protocols and the platform engineering things like that, I think the, the things that are currently kind of lurking in the dark are things which, if they become open political questions, I think actually um, it can be massively, massively improved for us all.
0: I um, mean, question, very quick question about Russia. I mean, about Ukraine, sorry, and, and the war in East Ukraine. I mean, there's a big part of about that in my book. So you could, that's probably the best way to engage with that. But sort of uh, my evidence base for making the statement that the information component of the war is more important than territorial gains is based on interviews with soldiers, military theorists and people on the ground. Um not that much Russian, but I think the fact that Russia clearly, you know, doesn't want to, you know, it's, it was a proxy control the territory, but hasn't bothered to, in, you know, invade, invade, and annex, like Crimea, is sure, evidence you from there. Uh, no. Uh, in the no, okay. I'm sorry. I've been in a context where I'm speaking very fast in the discussion. Let me clarify that, and I'm sorry for that. Was unclear. Uh, all I meant was that. For the soldiers on the ground, for the military tactics on the ground, we're in a very strange conflict where the informational effect has become more important than territorial gains. So the informational, that's not just happening in Ukraine, that's virtually all contemporary wars like this. This is just a new way of thinking about conflict. But also that is also expressed in the details of military tactics on the ground and about the amount of care and focus that would be taken if the aim was to retake, ter- retake territories in the short term. You'd have a different military approach there. It's going to the restaurant for uh, the Instagram posts. Well, I wouldn't put it as brutally as that. I mean, I certainly do not want to claim any kind of, kind of equality in these two sides. One side has invaded, the other side is defending itself. So there's definitely no kind of moral equality or equality in law. I'm just talking about what it shows about contemporary war and the way information has become more often more important than what's going on, on the ground. And what's going on in the ground has become, its main aim has become the informational effect. And that's slightly new. Any more, a couple more last questions? Thank you,
1: I uh, thank you for so much in, in this talk. And Peter, I just wanted to say I read your book uh, over the summer. I, it's a great cover by the way, The Unicorn and, and mm-hmm. Uh, I found, found myself
0: underlining all sorts of things, but um, the passage I wanted to ask you about was, um, you talk a lot about conspiracy
3: theories, how they've been weaponized. Um, I think it goes to, you know, it seems that one of the ways we generate outrage is politically through conspiracy theories and it, they increasingly kind of organize our political identities too. Could you speak a bit about that?
0: Okay, conspiracy theories, we like those.
1: And and linked, linked to that, um, What's your secret conspiracy theory that you really wish was true uh, <laughs> to all three? So maybe that's the last one.
4: I
0: think the idea that Simon Cowell actually controls Facebook is just a great one. Wow. We <laughs> should start pushing <laughs> yeah. out. Final one. Uh, I, I want Carl perhaps to say how uh, it, the the best thing it seems to me that we could do to that we could do to to, to recover the situation would be to. How could you enable on well, Marina's columns not just to be read by a s- small number of Guardian readers, but to get out
3: wide? <laughs> small number. <laughs> <get> out? Small <laughs> number indeed.
0: If those columns could be got out to the sort of 50 or 60 million Brits, then
4: things would certainly <laughs> change. How, how, oh my god, is it that bad am I the yeah. answer? Okay. <laughs> right, how, we need how, to leave here and go to the shelter. Yeah. How,
0: how can you alter the internet to make that kind of thing possible?
4: <laughs> Yaakov, yeah, how can you do that? Yeah. Uh, Let me go viral. <laughs> yeah.
0: I think if the marina generated like more outrage and like, you know, then it work, you know, just
4: more, more hate. Come up with some ideas for yeah. me in a minute when we're talking. Yeah. Any
0: favorite conspiracy theories or, or, or how do you see My the father in law really
4: believe that Jimi Hendrix was killed by the CIA and I would not rule that out at all. He recently died, but I want to carry on that flame for him. So I'm just <laughs> going to put it out there. If I'm asked about a conspiracy theory, I'm going to put it out there. Hendrix, drugs, I don't think so. He was getting too powerful. Okay, he would always be telling me a story with a massive joint, like, uh, anyway, so that was one of his theories. Was he spreading communism
0: through his guitar music, and, you know, it's kind of needs several layers of conspiracy theories for that to happen. Yeah,
4: but it's a civil rights, there's a whole load of, there's a whole load of stuff. Listen, okay, I can get on to this with you later, but I'm just putting that one out there. That's my first, I just want to keep that one alive.
0: I don't know, conspiracy theories have often kind of replaced ideologies, uh, especially for a type of leader that doesn't have a strong ideological basis like, you know, we have one in the US and they're all over the world, really. Conspiracies are, you know, A, it's a very pleasant worldview. In a a world of chaos, you have your big explanation. But the the more insidious bit is uh, if you live in a world of conspiracies where you can never get to the truth, uh, then the little guy can't do anything. Then democratic change is impossible. That's why Putin's regime is so sort of fond of conspiracy theories as their main kind of idiom, really. And then you need a big, strong leader to protect you in this dark world where you can never understand anything. Uh, so I think that they're quite effective that way. They're both pleasurable, uh, but also they kind of like you know they limit action and they make action seem hopeless. In conspiracy theory research, like everybody has their own conspiracy theories. Even like liberal, enlightened people who work, you know who who write for like you know left wing think tanks and liberal newspapers, or the other way around. I don't know anymore. Uh, even they have their own pet conspiracies. Yeah. I think that's it. Thank you very much.
3: Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.
2: Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time.